The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Only you, Lord. So in this time, uh, let this be a continuation of only you. Let this be a time of celebration of how great you are. Let this be a time of awe and wonder at your majesty, your, your infinite glory, God. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your unfailing words and your unfailing promises. Thank you for your infinite nature that you don't change. Thank you for the privilege it is to come before you on our knees and worship you. And I ask that this time be a continuation of that. That we would hear your words and we would understand. That our hearts would be open, our eyes would be open, and, and we would know you more and know you better. We give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been working through Psalm 23. Right? We looked at the Lord is my shepherd. Are we surrendered to the shepherd? Are we defined by a submissive spirit to God? We looked at I shall not want, the truth that God has given us everything we need for both life and godliness. And we looked at does a spirit of contentment define the Christian's life because it needs to. We need to be a people content with God and God alone. We looked at he makes me lie down in green pastures. What are those? We're meant to abide in Jesus. We're meant to remain fixed to the person of Christ. And what happens when we do so, he restores our soul. He renews. He returns to the original intended estate, the very essence and core of who we are. We looked at how he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake because all of this is about him. You can't call any one of us holy, holy, holy. God alone is holy, holy, holy. This must be about his name. And so we looked at, does humility define the life of the Christian? And then we looked at, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. That's where we're moving today. But last week, as we looked at going through the valley of the shadow of death, we looked at the truth of, there will be valleys. We will go through valleys. But the key word there is, through that the shepherd God leads us to the valleys, but that's not the, that's not the end destination. He leads us through the valleys. He is with us. I will fear no evil for you are with me. We looked at the promises time and time again in God's word that he is with us and the confidence that that gives us to approach this life. We looked at your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We define God's shepherd rod as his word. His word that has ultimate authority in every situation, that has power, that has strength and conviction. It's a, it's a weapon to attack the enemy. It's a weapon to defend against the enemy. We talked about allowing it to examine us, to know us, to test us, to find our weaknesses, to find our wounds, to convict us, to grow us. And then we looked at God's shepherd staff, the Holy Spirit, 
how He draws us, how the Holy Spirit draws us into fellowship with one another, how the Holy Spirit draws us into fellowship and deeper relationship with God, how the Holy Spirit guides us and gently nudges us and leads us. And this week, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to verse 5. Isn't it crazy? Like, these are six verses. There is so much in these six verses. We're only in verse 5, and I feel like we've already gone through books of this. So imagine if there is all this in just six verses, how much there is in the entirety of the Bible. This is why we study, because there is so much meat on these bones that we could eat forever and never reach the end of it, right? And last week, if you heard last week's message, I said this second half of Psalm 23 is where David really starts to kind of show off his shepherd knowledge. He starts to get very specific and he starts to really use deep personal shepherd knowledge. And that continues this week. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. And I bet there are some of you that are like, what? This is specific shepherd knowledge? Tables and cups and oil flowing? Are you sure? Yeah, this is why we study. This is exciting. Because there is so much packed into these phrases, right? So if you will, turn to Hebrews. It'll be towards the end of your Bible. Uh, Or if you're using your phone or an app, it'll be, I don't know, somewhere on the cloud. I really don't understand how technology works. But if you're using a book, it'll be near the end. Um, And while you're doing that, let's look at this first phrase. Let's look at the idea of this first phrase. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you're thinking, Sam, I know you said you don't know much about farming, Sheep don't eat at tables. It's an excellent observation. Or is it? Because here's where sheep do spend a large part of their year. And keep in mind, this whole psalm builds on itself, right? David is walking you through the life of a shepherd and his flock. And where sheep, where the shepherd would have led his flock for a large chunk of the year, was a mountaintop plateau. Spain and Africa have some, in western United States, have some of the best sheep country in the world. And where the shepherd will lead his flock for a large chunk of the year, really late spring through all of summer, into the beginning of fall, middle of fall, are these mountaintop plateaus. Guess how you get there? First, you have to go through the valley, like we saw last verse. But he leads them to these mountaintop plateaus. I mentioned Spain and Africa, right? The word for plateau in Swahili, the prominent African dialect of of this sheep area, is M-E-Z-A, Meza. The word for this mountaintop plateau in Spanish is M-E-S-A, Mesa. Who speaks Swahili? Anybody? That would have been really cool. I, I was hoping one of you guys were like, yeah, I'm fluent in Swahili. Who speaks Spanish? Translate Mesa. Table. Table. So the sheep spend a lot of their year pasturing at the table. And what would the shepherd do prior to that? Prior to these summer months spent at the table, the shepherd would go while they were in their winter safe pasture, the shepherd would go ahead and he would get this mountaintop plateau ready for them. He would walk every inch of the ground. He would know this mountaintop plateau. So he would know where the holes in the ravines were and the dangers were. The predators who would have tried to move in, he would drive them off. He would get ready the watering holes, the places of nourishment. He would ready the pastures and the fields of these mountaintop plateaus. Or, in David's words, the shepherd would have gone to prepare a table for the sheep. And he says, prepare in the presence of my enemies. 
And that's, that's also interesting. That's what directly ties into an, you anoint my head with oil. But as we're looking at this idea of a shepherd going ahead to prepare the table for his flock, we ask ourselves, well, okay, that sounds good, but do we see that in our own lives? Is, is this really true of us today, or is this just something for back then? Well, let's look at Hebrews. Let's look at Hebrews 2, starting in verse 14. Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, he being Jesus, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Then we look, you probably don't even have to turn your page. We look at Hebrews 14, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And if you flip forward a couple pages to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Where we are, Jesus has gone before. Jesus has been here. Jesus has walked these fields. Jesus has gone through this. Jesus has suffered. Jesus has been tempted. He has gone over every inch of this. John 14, Jesus says to his disciples, I prepare a place for you. Jesus has gone before us. Our shepherd has gone before us. And quick side note, and this is another awesome reason why you study the Bible, because the Bible all supports itself, right? Don't ever let people tell you that Jesus wasn't God. Jesus never claimed to be God. We've established Back in week one, we established the Bible consistently refers to God the Father as shepherd. So God the Father equals shepherd. Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd. So you have God equals shepherd equals Jesus. The, the Bible supports itself constantly. It's awesome. That's why we study, right? But our shepherd has gone before us. He has made a place ready for us. Philip Keller in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, says this, the Christian walk can thus become a mountaintop experience, a tableland trip, simply because we are in the care and control of Christ, who has been over all this territory before us, and prepared the table for us in plain view of our enemies, who would demoralize and destroy us if they could. The shepherd has gone before. The shepherd has prepared the table for us in the presence of our enemies, right? Because there will, there are still enemies. One day they'll be finally defeated, but right now there are still enemies. And the shepherd knew this about this mountaintop plateau, about the mesa, about the table. That there would still, he could drive, he could defeat the biggest enemies, the fear of death, right? But there would still be enemies, and don't get me wrong, please don't misunderstand that line when I say he could. If Jesus wanted to, if God wanted to, 
every enemy right now, gone, no problem. He is God. We're trusting his timing. That day is coming. But in the meantime, there are enemies who would pester and attack the flock. And that is what brings us to, he anoints my head with oil. Because you're like, okay, I'll buy the, he meant he prepares a table before me, literally with sheep. But he anoints my head with oil? This is showing off shepherding knowledge? Uh-uh. No, I'm not buying that. No, it's literal. A shepherd would anoint his sheep's head with oil. He would pour oil over the sheep's head. It was a special blend. Different shepherds had their own blends, depending on the exact region they were in. But it would be a blend of oils and spices and herbs that would consistently be anointing the sheep's head to protect against these enemies. Because see, in these fields, there were snakes that hid in the grass. And when the sheep went down to graze, the snakes would bite them and attack them. But the shepherd would blend the oil to where the snake, the snakes didn't like the smell of it. They didn't like the taste of it. So the oil anointing the sheep's head would drive away the snake. Even more deadly than the snake to the flock were the flies that would be in these pastures. And specifically, there was one kind of fly. You guys are like, man, I'm ready to go be a shepherd. I feel, I feel like I've learned more about farming in the last month than anything. Right? I feel like I have. I'm ready. Let's do it. And that would go terribly. But you have these flies. Specifically, you have nasal flies. And nasal flies lay their eggs in the mucous membrane of the sheep. They lay their eggs right in the nasal passage, as the name implies, of the sheep. And when these eggs hatch, the worms crawl up. The larvae crawl up the nasal cavity of the sheep. And they begin to eat on the sheep's brain. It, yeah, right? <laughs> and these worms, they burrow their way deeper and deeper into the sheep's brain. And it drives the sheep insane. I mean, they will literally, literally beat their heads against rocks, trees, anything, to the point of killing themselves just to get this nagging pest out of their mind. And if they hadn't killed themselves, this pest would still, it would distract them from eating. It would distract them from resting. They would be unable to function as they were supposed to in this pasture because this worm inside their mind was destroying their ability to approach life as they should. And this panic, this anxiety, this erratic behavior would spread to the rest of the flock. Ewes would stop paying attention to their lambs, and the lambs would suffer. Their behavior would affect the sheep around them, and that discomfort would spread throughout the flock, and the restlessness would spread, and they wouldn't stay in one place and eat and rest and thrive. And so these little tiny worms could ruin, utterly ravage an entire flock. But the oil on the sheep's head prevented the eggs from attaching to the membrane. So a shepherd would anoint his sheep's head with oil to produce protection against these little tiny enemies that would ruin them from the inside out. And the shepherd would also anoint his sheep's head with oil to protect them from internal conflict. Because sheep are brilliant, and if they're in conflict with one another, their first thought is, hey, let me use my head as a weapon. So a shepherd would put oil on his sheep's head so that when they tried to headbutt each other, instead of, you know, really doing some damage, they would glance off. And there would still be a little bit of an issue in an instance, but there wouldn't be irreparable damage. So a shepherd quite literally anointed his sheep's head with oil for multiple reasons. And again, well, that's great, Sam, but I'm not a shepherd. Do we see this today? Absolutely. 
Let's look at 2 Corinthians 1, 21-22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. God has anointed us with the Holy Spirit. Acts 10.38 describes how Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit for his ministry. 1 John 2, 20 and 27. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. What? His anointing abides? I thought you said we were anointed with the Holy Spirit. Are you sure you're talking about the Holy Spirit? His anointing abides in us? Yeah. Let's check out 2 Timothy 3.16. Or I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 1.14. But the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, or by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Then you have 2, uh, 1 Corinthians 3.16. There you go. I'm all over the place, man. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and the God's Spirit dwells in you? The Holy Spirit dwells in us. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit when we are believers in Christ. We have God's Spirit, His anointing, residing within us. But the anointing that you have received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, wait, okay, His anointing teaches and is true? John 16, 13, which we talked about twice in the past four or five weeks. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. We've looked at how the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us. This is true. So again, the Bible consistently and constantly reinforces itself. We are anointed with the Holy Spirit who abides within us and teaches us. God has given us the anointing of the oil on our heads. Because what, what does this Holy Spirit produce within us? The oil produced protection from both external and internal conflicts. Do we see the same with the Holy Spirit? Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Galatians 5, 22 to 24. I'm guessing many of you know this, the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Actually, I'm going to go on two more verses, 25 and 26. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Do we see external and internal protection and what the Holy Spirit produces in our lives? Yes, absolutely. We've been freed from the law of sin and death. See, those worms... I don't know if I'd call them nasal flies today. I'd call them things like envy. I'd call those little worms that burrow inside our mind and drive us crazy and ruin our lives. I'd call them jealousy and bitterness and anger and dissension and disunity and discord. I'd call them hate. I'd call them despair. I'd call them despondency. I'd call them cynicism and bitterness. That's what I would call those little nasal flies that burrow their way into our mind and ruin us that drive us crazy. That's the little thing that gets inside and it just eats away at you. You start off annoyed with your friend, then you're frustrated with your friend, then you're mad at your friend, then you're just disgusted. Right? Like, if I never speak to that person again, I will be A-OK. -okay. I will be happy if I never talk to them again. You don't think we allow worms to burrow inside our mind and eat away at us and ruin our lives? 
We looked when we looked at contentment, we looked at the poison that envy and jealousy is, right? You look at worry and fear. Ah, fear destroys us. It prevents us from trusting one another, from opening up to one another. It prevents us from building fellowship and unity. And we allow this worm of fear, of past rejection and past hurt to define every future action we take. And it eats away at us. These are the nasal flies we have in our lives today. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. The fruit of the Spirit is peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. If our lives are defined by these things, where's that worm going to lay its eggs? Where's that fly going to lay its eggs? If my life is defined by love and peace and patience and kindness, where is envy going to get a foothold? If my life is marked by the fruit of the Spirit, where in the world is this worm going to find traction? Where is it going to find sustenance? Philippians 4.8, I found it so fascinating. Adeline came home and I said, hey, I was Bible study, the women's study. And she said, oh, we talked about, you know, taking captive every thought. And I can promise you, Max Lucado and I did not, we didn't plan this, right? But Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If your mind is devoted to truth, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, praiseworthy thoughts, if that is what your mind is devoted to, where in your mind are those worms going to find ground to feast? Do we allow, do we surrender to the Spirit? Do we embody joy? Do we embody patience and kindness? Right? We looked at last week how the Holy Spirit draws us into fellowship with one another. If we are a flock, if we are a people defined by the fruit of the Spirit, are we going to be crashing head-to-head -head into each other, damaging each other, scarring one another? If my relationship with John... Hey, John. He didn't know I was going to talk to him today. You don't have to answer anything. But if my relationship with John is defined by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness... Does that sound like two sheep who are just going to be ramming their heads into one another? If we approach each other as being built into the dwelling of God together? Do you think that God intended for us to be sheep driven mad, beating our head against the wall? Just trying to get that bitterness out? Just trying to get that resentment out? I've shared this with, with you guys before numerous times. I'll share it again because please learn from me. The guy who abused my brother, right? I held on to that bitterness and that hatred for years. I refused to forgive the man who hurt my family and abused my kindergarten brother. Would not do it. And it drove me insane. Don't be a sheep like me. Don't beat your head against the wall wondering where that relief is. Surrender. Do you think God intended us for, for us to be a flock driven mad by these worms? Or do you think God intended us to be a flock defined by what the Holy Spirit produces within us? Love and joy and peace and patience. Kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Do you think he intended for our thoughts to be occupied by that's what they have that I don't. I don't like that person. I don't trust that person. I don't trust these people. They don't like me. I'm on my own. Woe is me. Life is bitter. Life is miserable. Life is pain. Do you think that's how God intended our thoughts to be occupied? 
Or do you think he intended our thoughts to be occupied by what is noble, what is honorable, what is excellent, what is praiseworthy? God loves us with everything in him. That is what he desires for us. And that brings us to David's third point, my cup overflows. And again, there's beauty in that my cup overflows. These three words is so much more than what they seem. There's certainly the idea of abundance. There's certainly the idea of blessing within my cup overflows. But we talked about that with I shall not want, right? We looked at contentment. In case you need the reminder again, John 10.10, the thief comes to kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Other translations say have life to the fullest. Max Lucado in one of his books says, if awareness of what we don't have creates jealousy, is it possible that an awareness of our abundance will lead to contentment? So absolutely, my cup overflows. There are connotations of abundance. There are connotations of the blessings that God pours out on us. But that's not what have stood out to the people who first heard this psalm. This isn't what would have jumped out to that original audience. This is where you have to know your history. This is where you have to know your culture, right? History. This is the history time. This is exciting. This is all exciting. Historically, the cup was very subtly used to signify a relationship between a host and a guest. Like if I had you over to my house, right? And I wanted you to know that I delight in your presence, I enjoy our time together, I enjoy our fellowship, I would have had my servants keep your cup full. So if you were at someone's house, you knew, okay, time's up, gotta pack up, gotta head out the door, when your cup was empty. Right? Like as the host, you're like, all right, I've enjoyed this dinner party, but it's time for you to go. And the host would give a subtle signal to his servants, hey, stop filling their cups. That's what the cup symbolized. The cup symbolized fellowship and relationship to this original audience. So when you have the idea, the image of an overflowing cup, what would have jumped out to those people was, what? God delights in my fellowship so much that he never wants it to end? God will never allow my cup to run empty? God desires this time together so much that, no, 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 that, what? And the sad thing is, I bet there were some people back then who heard that and couldn't wrap their mind around it. They heard, God has my cup filled to overflowing, and they, no, not me. And the sad thing is, I bet there are some of you right now who are saying, no, not me. I bet there are some of you right now who are hearing these words and you're saying, mm, not, that, that's not me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who I've been. You don't know what it feels like. God, God might have your cup filled to overflowing, but not mine. God's tired of my presence. That devastates me. That absolutely breaks my heart when I talk to Christians who have allowed self-doubt of how much God loves them to permeate their lives. I mean, it absolutely crushes me. When Christians don't realize how much the Lord loves you and desires fellowship with you, that's what David is getting at with my cup overflows. Listen to these words. Listen to Psalm 18, 19. God brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. 
He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. When was the last time you thought of God looking at you with such joy and exuberance that He couldn't help but sing a song of celebration? When was the last time you thought about God exulting over you with singing? Do you believe these words to be true? God delights in you. He rejoices over you. Isaiah 62, 2-5 The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Listen to verse 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate. There are few things, as in my opinion, there are few things as utterly damaging as a defeated attitude. Cynicism will kill you. You don't even have a chance. If you give in to cynicism, if you give in to fatalism, you're done. If we allow it to take hold in our lives, oh, my name is forsaken. My land is desolate. That's just who I am. I'm abandoned. I'm rejected. I'm I'm this. I, if we allow those to define us, please hear this verse. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her, in your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. What a beautiful image. A groom rejoicing over his bride. I can, anytime I want, I can close my eyes and I can picture Adeline turning the corner to walk down the aisle at our wedding. Anytime I want. It is absolutely the image I can conjure up anytime. And I can picture the look on her face when she took my hands and she said her vows. Anytime I want. I was rejoicing with everything inside of me. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so the Lord rejoices over you. Do not allow that worm of fatalism to burrow into your mind and tell you that your name is desolate. Do not allow that worm of cynicism to burrow into your mind and tell you that your name is forsaken, your name is abandoned, your name is rejected, your name is unloved. God exalts over you. God delights in you. God fills your cup to overflowing because he is telling you, I don't want this to ever end. This fellowship, this relationship, this time together, this brings me joy. Servants fill their cup to overflowing. That is what is packed into those three simple words that David writes. This is not, verse 5 is not some poetic license, right? You prepare a table, you anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. That really doesn't have to do with shepherding. David's just kind of being creative there. No, he is being very literal, describing the relationship between a shepherd and his flock. So we have to ask ourselves, does verse 5 define our lives? Do we realize that God has gone before us? He's prepared a table before us. He has dealt with our enemies. He has dealt with the law of sin and death and the things that would kill us and destroy us.
that God has anointed us with the Holy Spirit. He has provided the protection against the things that would turn us slowly insane, the things that would ruin the flock and our relationship with one another. God has protected us against these things. He has given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He delights in us. He rejoices over us. He exalts over us. Imagine what our lives would look like if we lived in that joy. I mean, imagine. Imagine if you woke up and you knew, ah, today is a day that the Lord rejoices over me. Today is a day that the Lord has provided me with everything I need to protect against the enemies of this world. What would our lives look like if we woke up and that was the truth that was imprinted on our minds? These worms that try and eat away at us, if we're like, no, there's nothing for you. My thoughts aren't for you. My heart's not for you. I'm a person of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness. Because that's who the Holy Spirit is, and that's how He leads me. Imagine if we were people who were defined by verse 5. What a beautiful thing that would be. This is what David is getting at, that the shepherd does for his flock because of his deep, deep, deep love for them. And I want us to live within that love. I want him to let it define us, to reside in us. So as we look at our challenge this week, look at Galatians, uh, Galatians 5, 22 to 24, the fruit of the Spirit that we just read, right? So read those verses every day. But then also read Ephesians 4. And look at how Ephesians 4 and Galatians 5, look at how they line up. Ephesians 4 talks about us being a new creation in Christ. Right? Where we think your name is no longer desolate, your name is... My delight is in her. So read Ephesians 4, read Galatians 5, look at how those two line up. Let this truth define us. And then practically, identify one of the nasal flies in your life. Right? You didn't think you were going to hear that sentence today. <laughs> identify the nasal flies in your life. And don't let, them, don't let them eat into you. Swat them away with Scripture. When envy tries to worm its way in, when bitterness, when loneliness, when grief, when anger... When they try and worm their way in, swat the fly away with Scripture. No, I'm not a person of this. The Holy Spirit dwells within me, and the Holy Spirit produces the fruit of love. The Holy Spirit produces the fruit of joy. This isn't me. This will not define me. I will not allow this to control my life because that is not who I am in Christ. That's the practical challenge for us this week.